Well, good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you with us here this morning. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids and kids in Aletheia Junior, you're free to dismiss your kids at this time uh, if you would like. Uh, and go ahead and turn over to John chapter 1 um, if in your scripture journals. If uh, you weren't here last week and you want a scripture journal, just raise your hand. Uh, we have some volunteers around here that would love to bring a scripture journal to you. Uh, that's our free gift to you. Uh, we love the Word of God here at Aletheia church and uh, would love to give that to you so you could be able to take notes and follow along. Um, we would just ask that you would bring that back with you in future weeks uh, so you can kind of keep up as we study the gospel of John together uh, as a church. And as you're turning over to John chapter one, uh, I want to set the stage for us uh, this morning. Uh, I want to pose kind of a, a question to you. Have you ever thought about how human beings are fascinated and drawn to stories and, and thought about why that might be. You know, if you study history, you know that many ancient cultures used oral tradition to pass down the history of their tribe or their people, and this was often done through story. Uh, many of the best movies and, and plays, musicals, and books in human history are well told stories. Uh, famous stories even today in pop culture would be things like the wizarding world of Harry Potter or uh, some of you guys are like, yeah, woo, right? Or the story of Middle Earth, right? Where Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and we learn about the hobbits, right? James Bond, right? A series of stories about a British secret agent, Quite simply, I think it goes without saying that we love hearing stories and the heroes that are wrapped up in them. It's just something we're drawn to as human beings. You know, the best book I read last year in 2022 was a, a book called Everything Sad is Untrue by a, uh, an Iranian refugee by the name of Daniel Nairi. And the book is a biographical memoir of him as a young Iranian refugee. And the book is told from his perspective as a nine and 10 year old child. So as he's relaying his story of having to leave Iran and living in Ira Iranian refugee camps in the United Arab Emirates, and then later on his, his family lived in a refugee camp in Italy and then eventually moved to Oklahoma, the book is written from not his perspective now in his late 30s, but his perspective as a 10-year-old Iranian child. And there are a number of reasons why I found the book so compelling, but at the heart of it, it was a beautiful story about his life and the heroes that shaped him as a young child. I highly recommend the book because you'll experience the testimony of this young man and more importantly, his mother as the true hero in his life. And the reason that they were running in the first place is because she had come to know Jesus and was forced to leave or be murdered. I think I want us to pause and process for a second, though, because I share the, 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 some of the details of that story. I talk about this idea of story because in a much larger way, we need to understand that something that is true about us and those around us in this room this morning. Stories matter. Stories matter. 
Your story matters. My story matters. Our story matters. Who you are, what shaped you, what guides you matters. Because it gives the people around you a glimpse into who you really are and invites them into a much larger opportunity, which is to learn and experience the truth of what drives you and made you who you are. Stories can relay lessons and warnings. They can portray dreams for the future, but also allow for personal introspection. They can give us role models to aspire to imitate, or share the truth of people who are worth following. Our text this morning is about John the Baptist, a man who's experiencing a thriving ministry in the wilderness of Israel, and the Jewish leaders send the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to question him about his ministry. And you'll notice They don't ask him about his ministry strategy, although they get into it a little bit. They don't want to discuss theology with him, so to speak. No, they ask him the question, who are you? Because our answer to that question matters deeply. To put it in a much maybe more succinct way, they're asking John the Baptist, what is your story and why is God blessing your ministry? And John's going to share his story with them. But I want you to notice that John's story ends up being not so much about him, but about Jesus. And we're going to see from the life of John the Baptist as we read this passage this morning, that any really good story, any story worth sharing is ultimately wrapped up in the story of our creator and his son and what he's done for us. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to gather with your saints this morning. What an honor it is to be able to sing songs that declare the glory of who you are, to pray together, to open your word together and study it together, and to spend time with one another. Lord, as we look at the gospel of John this morning, will you open our eyes afresh to the glory of who you are and what you've done? And will it lead all of us in this room to a greater worship of you? And will that motivate us to witness to your glory to those around us so that more people might come to know you, to worship you as God and King? And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 1, verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony, right? So we're, we're being told by John, the apostle John, immediately, hey, here's the story of John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So we notice immediately from the apostle John's account here 
that these religious leaders want to know who John is. They are fascinated by his ministry out in the wilderness, what he's doing, how he's baptizing people, how people are leaving cities and heading out into the wilderness to be baptized by him, and they take notice of him and his ministry. They want to know and they want to learn from him, and they want to know whether they can recommend his ministry or maybe even partner with him in the future. And we're going to see uh, in verses 20 through 22, uh, John's going to immediately, when they, they come out into the wilderness and ask him, who are you? He's going to correct three misconceptions or false perceptions about who people think he is and what his ministry is. So in verse 20, he answers twice by saying, I am not the Christ. I'm not the long-awaited anointed one or Messiah that God had promised in the Old Testament to his people. I am not that guy you're looking for. I am not here to lead a political insurrection. I'm not here to deliver God's people. I am not the one you are looking for. And he says it twice in, in ancient literature when someone would repeat themselves in a short period of time, it meant that they were trying to emphatically display to their audience, this is true what I'm telling you, please listen to me. And so John the Baptist starts off by telling these religious leaders that have come out to check on his ministry, to hear his testimony, to find out who he is, I am not the Christ, which inevitably leads them then to start wondering, well, who are you? How could you possibly be drawing this many people to your ministry? How could you be doing so much work out here in the wilderness where there's no reason uh, to why people would want to come out here? What, what is your story then? If you're not the Messiah, who are you? And they ask him this question in verse 21. They say, well, then are you Elijah? And we saw last week in our kind of like brief, just kind of snippet of what we saw of John the Baptist, that in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, that the prophet Malachi had promised before kind of the, the, the scripture had gone silent or the prophetic word of God's people went silent after the exile for about 300 to 400 years. One of the last promises that Malachi had given to God's people was that before the Messiah would arrive in Israel, that the prophet Elijah, excuse me, the, the prophet Elijah would show back up in Israel again. And so they're wondering, well, hold on a second. John's ministry is exploding. People are being baptized. Uh, we, we're not really sure what's going on with this ministry. Maybe John is Elijah then. Maybe Elijah has returned to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And John responds to them and says, nope, I'm not Elijah either. John says that he is not this long-awaited return of a prophet. Now, what's interesting, and I don't want to get into a ton of, of details on this, but Jesus actually says that John the Baptist is one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but John himself claims that he is not Elijah himself because he is not. Right, And so what Jesus is going to share with us in the Synoptic Gospels is that the fulfillment of that prophetic word actually did come through John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was not Elijah himself. So we have John saying, hey, here's my story. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. And so then the next question in verse 21 that comes from these religious leaders, well, then are you the prophet? 
This is in reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, where Moses is giving this sermon to the Israelites before they enter into the promised land. And he's getting ready to die. He knows he's getting ready to die. And he says this, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moving on. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So what Israel was looking for was this prophet who was gonna come along like Moses and speak God's word to them and to lead them as God's people the way that Moses had. And so the religious leaders began to say, well, you know, if, if John started this new ministry and he's out in the wilderness and he's doing these things and his ministry's growing and he's having ministry success and God seems to be blessing him and he's not the Messiah and he's not Elijah, then he must be the prophet. He must be this one that's better than, than Moses that God has sent along. And John responds, nope, I'm not the prophet. And you can almost sense it at this point in the story, like the, the tension that's going on with these religious leaders, right? Because they see God blessing this ministry. They see people's lives being changed as they come out into the wilderness to hear the word of God because John preached a baptism of repentance and, and preparation and returning to the God of Israel. And they cannot fathom how John could be doing all these amazing things and not be one of these promised people of the Old Testament. They just, they can't fathom it. And so they ask him in verse 22, who are you then? Who, who could you possibly be if you're not one of these three? How could you possibly be so well-versed in the scriptures and be so eloquent as a speaker and live so piously as a human? How is this possible? You must be one of the special ones. Otherwise, your ministry makes no sense. And John the Baptist begins to share his story with them. The blessing and flourishing that they see, according to John, is not because of him or who he is, but because of God's faithfulness and the one to whom he's proclaiming. Right? Look at verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You might find it kind of fascinating what John uses to describe himself. He doesn't say, he doesn't say I'm, I'm, I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the Christ or the Messiah. He doesn't go on this tirade about how well-educated he is and what a great teacher he is. He doesn't go into lessons about how he's from the Levitical priesthood and, and that's why he is the way he is. He doesn't give any attention to himself except to give one title to himself. He says, I am a voice and nothing else. I'm simply here to point people back to God through my words. 
not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I am simply a messenger sharing what God has asked me to share with you. These people do not come out into the wilderness to worship me. They're not here because I plan to liberate Israel. I am simply being used by God to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. I'm nothing but a voice. Aletheia Church, that is what we are. You know, oftentimes, I, I, especially when I was a, a younger believer and I would study the scriptures and I would read them, I'd be like, why are we here? You know, once we've come to faith in Christ, what is really the purpose of all of this? And then once you kind of understand the role of Christ's church and why for the last 2,000 years the church has continued to expand across every tribe, nation, and tongue, you begin to understand that for those of us who are in Christ here this morning, your identity is changed and that identity come, is changed to one of a voice where you are called to witness to the excellencies of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And some of you guys are looking at me with this, this face of like, really? Are you sure about that, Pastor Kevin? Like, a, Throw up 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for me. Right? I talked about this last week, and you're going to hear this a lot. But look at what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth. Right? I, I made this comment last week that everyone loves verse 17, right? It's everyone's favorite memory verse, right? Especially if you have a wild testimony and your life was crazy before you became a Christian, you love verse 17, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Beautiful verse. Love it. Right? Like how beautiful a truth for those that find themselves to be in Christ, that if you are in him, you are a new creation in the eyes of God, that you are his son or his daughter and your past does not define you, but you are made new in Christ through, through the, the power of his blood. And yet, how often do we quickly just discard immediately what Paul says after that? He says, all this, so he's referring to the fact that if you are a Christian here this morning, you are a new creation in Christ. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, look at this, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see what the apostle Paul is saying there? He's saying the exact same thing that John the Baptist is saying. He's like, hey, because I have been made new by the body and blood of Christ, I am an ambassador for the gospel. I'm just a messenger. Or to use John's word, I'm just a voice. Church, we are voices. 
And one of the reasons why I think oftentimes in life we can feel bogged down as Christians, we feel like we are sidetracked by the cares of the world or so many things that go on around us is we forget that the primary purpose that we have now as followers of Jesus is no longer for our own good, but is to declare the beauty and the goodness of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And if we've lost our why, we're gonna get bogged down by other things. And John just simply says, I am a voice. I'm not some vibrant ministry leader. I'm not some great man to be admired or to be followed. I'm simply a voice. And then look at what he says he's a voice for, starting in verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah, nor the prophet. You, see, you can kind of see where they're going. They're like, if you're just a voice, what, why are you doing this? What is going on in all this? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. I see the Jewish leaders had an issue with the way that John was doing ministry if he was not in fact one of these three people. They're like, well, why are you baptizing then? And and one thing to kind of understand is that baptism wasn't necessarily a a Jewish um, ritual or concept. They they called it ceremonial cleansing would just be the term that we would use nowadays would be baptism. But the idea of baptism, what they were doing, was not something that was lost in Jewish culture. Um, You know, if you had been defiled by a corpse or were were for some reason ceremonially unclean in the Old Testament, you had to go through a purification ritual, and that included some sort of ceremonial cleansing before you would be invited back into God's covenant community. Um, Gentiles during this time period went through a baptism or a ceremonial cleansing as part of their conversion. But John's baptism did not fall under either of these categories. See, John simply preached a baptism of repentance where he was proclaiming to God's people, hey, none of us are following God the way that he has told us to follow him. And the Messiah is getting ready to show up, be baptized for the repentance of sin, declaring to God, I am a sinner and I am in need of your forgiveness. Step into the water and display outwardly what is going on internally that you want to follow after God and turn from yourself. That was what John's ministry was centered on. And so the the Jewish leaders are wondering, what is going on here? (laughs) Why why are you doing ministry this way if it has not been passed down by the fathers, if it's not been passed down for us previously? And John's response is quite simple. You want to know what authority I have? I baptize for two reasons. I baptize with water to signify repentance so that people are prepared when the Messiah shows up. And then he says this, the one who comes after my baptism, that's whose authority I'm under. 
And this would have been something strange to say because in Jewish tradition, the, the fathers or the ones that came before were always more important than the ones who were to come. Jews loved Moses. They loved Abraham. And to think back to their forefathers and their ancestors who had passed on the word of God to them. So for John as this religious leader to be saying, actually the one who's coming after me is far more important than me. That's the one I'm preparing for would have been something that would have struck these men as they heard this word and testimony from him. And then he goes on to say that not only is my ministry preparing for him, but the strap of his sandal, I am not even worthy to untie. See, the, the idea of a disciple in Jesus' time is that the disciples followed their master and did everything that their master asked of them. And you, as you can probably guess, the, this relationship actually had a ton of opportunity for abuse. That the disciple was often treated poorly and was treated as a servant to the master. But one of the things that was true of the relationship between a disciple and his master is that there were some things that were even too low for a disciple to do for his master. And one of those things would have been washing and cleaning the feet of the master. That oftentimes even slaves were not asked to do this because the feet of human beings during this time period were, were so dirty and grungy and, and grimy and gross that you wouldn't ask your disciple to do something like this. And as these religious leaders come to John and ask him under what authority he falls under and whose ministry he falls under, he says... The one who stands among you who you do not see, I'm lower than him, I'm lower than a slave. I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. That's how great he is. You guys come out here looking at me, thinking that I'm some great religious leader, that I'm one to be followed, that my ministry is something to be idolized or mimicked, and I'm here to tell you that the only power behind my ministry is the man in whom I'm preparing you all to meet. He's saying it's all about this one who is coming. I am nothing. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And this stands in contrast to even the very things that Jesus said to be true about John in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he tells them that among men, there is no one that has been born who is greater than John the Baptist. But then he goes on to tell his disciples, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. See, John the Baptist is a great man. And here's what we can probably all agree upon here this morning. There, there's people with all sorts of various backgrounds, different cultures in here, probably different political ideologies and worldviews. But here's something we could all probably agree on. That great men and women who find themselves in positions of power tend to make it all about themselves in the end that typically once people rise to a position of prominence and power, they tend to believe their own hype and they tend to make it all about them. And John the Baptist is a great man who was tempted 
especially in this moment as he's asked to share his testimony and his story with these people to make it about himself. And John responds simply with, you know, my ministry, it's all about Jesus. Church, the goal of our stories, the goal of our testimony, according to John, is to make it about Jesus and not about ourselves. And look at how he brings that home, starting in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. See, the religious leaders would have still been there because they came out in the wilderness to ask John while he was there. And not surprisingly, there are no accidents in God's timing. Jesus shows up while they're out there. And as Jesus shows up, John looks at him and says, this is why I am a voice. This man, the Lamb of God. He's harking back on Isaiah 53 to those that would have been familiar with it. Right, the suffering servant who would die for God's people. He's making reference to the Passover lamb who would take away the sin of Israel. See, Jesus is the reason you seek to know why I am here, is what John is saying to these religious leaders. You are here to see me because he has come. Aletheia Church exists for one reason and one reason only, to declare the good news of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So often we want to make church about something to do with us. Oh, I'm there because the worship is really good or I'm there because the community is really strong or I'm there because I love the liturgy or I'm there because the pastors are really, really good joke tellers. I'm there because my friends go there. And those can be reasons why a church family might feel like home to you but they're not the reason the church exists. And when I say the church, I'm not just talking about this group of believers gathered in this room this morning. No, I'm talking about the big C church that has gathered all over the world today. Some have already gathered and sung and declared the glory of Jesus Christ in our home, and some will be gathering in a few hours. But the church Corporate has gathered today and gathers every Sunday to declare the glory of their Savior, to witness and to declare to the world, this Jesus 
is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. We exist to declare to an unbelieving world around us that Jesus is greater than everything else this world has to offer. He's better than money. He's better than power. He's better than celebrity. He's better than education. He's better than relationships. He's better than our biological family. He's better than sex. Jesus is better than all of those things. And, and here's how I know this to be true. All of those things I just mentioned are common idols and things that people wrestle with and worship. And never once has money or power or celebrity or sex or a relationship died to take away your sin. Not once. It's a false God with false promises that never come true. And so as John stands there and he sees Jesus walking towards him, he says, behold, right? Which is a, a term that we're not, we don't really yell behold anymore, right? Or you, don't see, you don't see people when the gators are doing well, behold, <laughs> we're winning again which I know we're not doing a whole lot of right now. And we might be like, hey, let's go to the game. Let's cheer. They're great. They're awesome. We're not yelling, behold, but this is what John screams out to get their attention. He says, look, behold, here he is. God's lamb who's come to take away our sin. The whole reason I've been in the wilderness in the first place, baptizing and telling people to repent and be ready for the kingdom of God is at hand, is finally before us. He's here in the flesh. And he knows their objections. They're going to be like, how do you know it's him? Isn't this your cousin? How did you, how did you not know this already? Right? And look at what he says. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. See what John's saying there? He's like, I didn't even know my cousin was the guy. But God told me that as I prepared the way for the Messiah, for the Son of God, that when he came, the Spirit would descend on him like a dove and rest on him, and that's how I would know. And I am here to tell you that I baptized Jesus, and as I baptized him, the Holy Spirit descended upon him and remained on him like a dove, and that's how I knew. Jesus didn't do some like mental jujitsu as my cousin to proclaim to me that he was the guy. No, God confirmed it for me, and that is my testimony. My ministry exists to declare the glories and the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That's the guy. 
John says, I saw the dove and it was on him. That's my testimony. You can choose to believe it or not, but it is he who has come. And he comes not to baptize with water for repentance like I have. No, he comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And guys, here's why that is so significant. Because what John is communicating to us is, hey, my baptism displayed something that was going on internally inside of you already to turn to God. But when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, by this guy, your life will be radically transformed by God. Because the Holy Spirit has the power to confirm, to transform, and to change. So John says, to these religious leaders that have come out to him. You, you want to know my story? My story only matters in who it tells you about. And my story is this. Behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sin of the world, who baptizes us, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit to empower us to live a new life for him, to seal us in his forgiveness and compels us to obey God and put sin to death and to live for our creator. That is my story. My story tells the greater story, the story of God's son, the savior of the world. What about you? What is your testimony? What is your story? If someone asked you this morning, what are you all about? What are you doing? Why are you here? What's going on with your life? What would your answer to them be? You know, if you had asked me 16 years ago, my story was probably similar to a lot of you guys. And I grew up nominally going to church, though I joke and say that my family's primary religion in many ways was youth travel soccer. You just said, well, what are you all about, Kevin? What's going on? And I would have probably said things like, I don't know, college getting a job, maybe having a family. But looking back, I realized that what was really going on is that I lived for myself. And I chased all that the world had to offer. But at the end, it was really just all about me. And I could have sat there and talked to you for 20 minutes and told you a story and you might've walked away saying, man, that guy really loves himself a lot. He may have even presented it in a way that didn't appear like it did, but man, that guy really loves himself a lot. And the results of that life, I was a terrible friend, a bad son. I was unhappy, faking that I was happy. I was broke, I was performing poorly in school, I was arrested, drunk a lot, lost, angry, resentful and jealous. 
because the world had sold me a bill of goods that if I lived for myself and made it all about me and did everything that I ever wanted, I would have all the happiness I ever needed. And when you do those things and you don't get the results you want, you get kind of angry. And in the midst of all of that, I was in my second year of college and my sister was at the same university as me. And I was watching her life being transformed before my eyes. She was patient, loving, happy, gentle, kind, making friends, enjoying life. You know, it's kind of hard when you have experienced one set of emotions and one way of looking at the world and someone who grew up in the exact same home as you is having the complete opposite experience because then I couldn't blame my parents who are here this morning, by the way. It's like, my life stinks. And it'd been really easy to say like, it's all mom and dad's fault. And then it's like, look at Kristen. It's like, well, crap. And here's the beautiful thing. What I didn't know until later is that the reason my sister's life was so full of joy and peace was that she came to know Jesus that first semester at college. She had her life transformed by him. My sister, by God's grace, started hanging out with a guy who was a bad friend and a bad brother and a bad son. She's actually the one that got me out of jail the time I got arrested. And she just started investing on me and loving, loving me. And she wasn't dumb. She could see me. She had known me for 20 years. She could see it on my face, even though I was telling a different story that my life was great and fine. She knew better. And she started telling me about Jesus. And I'm like, look, look, I've been down that road. That's cool. Church kind of is boring. No, thanks. I don't need that. And she just kept telling me about how God was transforming her life. And so I started on this journey of trying to disprove Christianity and studying the ins and outs of apologetics and studying other world religions. And one, I found that I wasn't as smart as I thought I was and that there was actually a lot of evidence for the truths of the scriptures. But here's one thing that apologetics couldn't do for me. I had a front row seat to a life being transformed by Jesus and there was no philosophy that could undo what I was watching happen right before my eyes. How God had rescued my sister and died for her sins and forgiven her and given her purpose in a new direction for his life. And eventually, it became overwhelming. Her story was too much. And God used her story to grip me with the truth of who he was and what he had done for me in Christ, and he saved me. And now my life is forever changed. Guys, I remember being told by somebody when I was a kid that I was going to be a pastor, and I laughed at them and said, there's no chance. And then I remember in college, after I was a brand new believer at my church, my pastor came up to me and was like, I think you're going to be a pastor. And I was like, your job sucks. I don't want to do that. You don't make any money. And you have wild hours. Like, why would I want to do what you're wanting to do? God does win. <laughs> because God's grace 
is more gripping than any plan I had for my life. And it saved me and my life is forever changed. I'm a pastor, a son, a husband, a father. I have joy and peace that oftentimes I can't even put into words for people. I have hope. And for those of you guys that have known me for any period of time, go ask my parents, okay? I am the most cynical person that has ever lived. And ultimately, I have love. Because of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because I've been adopted as a son of the Most High God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. My life has been changed forever. And now, like John, I, like many of you in this room this morning, am one of many voices all over the world declaring, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, do you know him? Have you trusted in him? He came to take away your sin and liberate you and forgive you and to give you the Holy Spirit. And as John testified to prepare Israel for Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus here this morning, you testify that he has already come and to turn and trust him today. Don't leave here this morning without having done that.